We serve a, a wonderful God. He's not only our Father, our friend. He's, he's close to us. How beautiful. But when we, when we look to the world, we see so many of these beautiful things that God has created and, and created for you and for me. We look to the oceans and the beautiful uh, beaches and sunrises and sunsets, the, the stars in the sky, the different species of trees that we have, and, and we see that God has created this world with beauty and uniqueness. Um, but one of the things that I particularly like about God's creation is animals. Um, I, I love animals. Um, the reason I convinced my wife to get a cat was by me taking pictures of every stray cat that I saw and petting it. Um, <laughs> But I also found out that um, throughout my life that God's created some pretty interesting animals and these in animals all have different unique talents. Some are for protection, some are for uh, hunting, some are for preservation. And I just want to share a few of the animal traits that I thought were really interesting this week while I was preparing my sermon. Um, so for instance, roosters, did you know that when they crow, they tilt their heads back just enough to block off their ear canals? so that when they crow, it doesn't make them go deaf, because they're really annoying in the morning. It's interesting, I didn't know that. Uh, koalas, which are actually a marsupial, not a bear, um, they can sleep for up to 22 hours a day, uh, much like the North American teenager. Um, <laughs> sorry, you had to. Um, and okay, this one was threw me off a little bit. The common garden snail, I'm sure most of you guys have seen one of these in your backyard before. Uh, but they can have up to 14,000 teeth. That's not nightmare material. Um, but this next animal came as a surprise to me. So I'll give you a few uh, pieces of information on it, see if you can tell me what you think it is. Uh, the first is that this creature has highly sensitive hearing. It can, hear, um, it can hear noises up to 100 kilometers away because it has such powerful uh, auditory sensors. Uh, the second is that they have great night vision. They have uh, uh, night vision equal to that of owls, and they can see quite well in the dark. Uh, the third is that there's 150 different species of this creature. And the fourth, and my favorite, is that they need a passport to get into Britain. I don't know why that matters. Does anyone know what it is? No, it's not a bat. Taylor, did you get it? Oh, it's a donkey. Ah! They have amazing eyesight. That, that's, I was impressed when I heard that. I don't know about the passport thing, it's real though. Uh, donkeys. Uh, today we are continuing our series, The Power of the Presence of God, and, and the purpose of this series as we've been walking through it is to look at how God's presence shows up in different stories of the Bible and what we can learn about who God is through his presence in these powerful stories. And so Last week, Pastor Dustin walked us through the, the story of God revealing himself to Ezekiel and, and to Adam and Eve when he first walked with them in the Garden of Eden, how we are created to walk alongside God, not only because of Jesus and what he's made in the reconciliation we can have with God in a meaningful relationship with him, but that we can call him our friend. He is as close to us and as familiar to us as, we, uh, as our friends even are. And so this morning, we are coming to a very odd story about a man named Balaam and his donkey. Yes, it does tie in. Um, and his donkey spoke to him. None of this is relating to Shrek. There's no overlap there. Um, I had to throw one in there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, turn to Numbers chapter 22, one of the first few books of the Bible, Numbers chapter 22. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me here. 
Uh, We'll be starting at verse 21. Numbers chapter 22, starting at verse 21. Then we'll read to verse 35 there. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards um, with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No said Balaam. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If I had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. Um, We're we're jumping right into the middle of a story that probably doesn't make too much sense unless we have a bit of context. Um, So, I'll give you guys a little bit of more story what's happening here. Um, Let's go back to the time that the Israelites came out of Egypt. They'd seen God work these ten plagues, incredible wonders in the nation of Egypt. He'd rescued them from them, uh, and they walked through the Red Sea. God parted the waters for them to go through. And because of their sinfulness, their grumbling against God, uh, they're, they're made to wander in the desert for 40 years before they can enter into the Promised Land. So there's this group of a million plus people wandering through the desert, moving locations every so often as God's presence would lift from the pillar of fire or the pillar of smoke. And so they finally come to the point where they're going to be entering into the promised land. They are coming up to it. Their 40 years has finally gone and the time has finally come for them to enter into it. And it's exciting. And as God leads them into the land, they must clear out all of the invading nations that are already taking over the promised land. So first, the Canaanites. As, as the Israelites come into this promised land, uh, they first encounter the Canaanites. And as they talk with them, um, the Canaanites refuse to have any type of agreement with them. They go and fight the Israelites, and they're completely annihilated and decimated. Uh, so that's the first group of people. The second group of people, they continue in the land, and they meet the Amorites. And They don't want to attack the Amorites, and so they ask them if they can just pass through their land without having any problems. And the Amorites said, no, no, we don't want any of that. So they brought out their entire forces, and they fought against the Israelites, and they were completely decimated. They were annihilated, wiped out. 
And then the Israelites camp on the plains of Moab. They're just outside of the great kingdom of Moab. And we come to this part of the story and, and we see that the king of Moab is actually a really smart man. He's, he's heard the stories about how this group of people has, has decimated these, these nations, his friends and allies even, and how they are continuing to progress through the land. And so not only does he see these hundreds of thousands of people camped out in front of his city, uh, but he's heard the stories of what they can do and he's terrified. So in order to get them to stop attacking him, he sends a message to a guy named Balaam. He sends a message to a diviner. Uh, and you can think of um, you can think of him kind of like a palm reader. He was someone who would try and find an answer on God's behalf to give to someone if they paid him to do that. Uh, so he was, he was paid to use magic and sorcery to find out answers on behalf of people. Now, uh, there's a lot of confusing portions to this story that I want to walk us through because... First of all, this man isn't even a Hebrew. Balaam, the prophet here, he's not with the Israelites. Uh, he's on his own, and so he's, he's not really a prophet of the Lord, but he still does hear the Lord's voice. Um, if, if you look to the, the language that Balaam uses when he's calling out to God, or not just a God, but he uses the term Lord, uh, which isn't just like another title for king or priest or ruler or something, it was the name for God, the capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. This is the God that he's speaking to, and yet he's trying to curse the Israelites. So how do we reconcile this? So you see here that, that Balaam seemed to know that Yahweh was the real God, but he, he, he didn't really have a relationship with him. In the end, he knew that Yahweh was powerful and mighty, but he didn't live his life for Yahweh. He instead used God in order to live his own lifestyle, in order to get what he wanted out of life. And, and here's where we see that happen. So when, when the king of Moab first sends these officials, these princes, and they send a bunch of money to Balaam in order to entice him to come and speak these words and curse the people of Israel, um, this is what uh, God says to Balaam in response to Balaam being asked to come and curse them. God says to him, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on the people because they are blessed. Pretty straightforward, right? There's not really much wiggle room within that. Don't put a curse on them. They're blessed. Okay, don't go with them. And Balaam obeys. And the story is good so far. We have a prophet who's actually listening to the Lord. Fantastic. Uh, but when the king hears that he was denied, he sends back even more officials, more princes, and more wealth to entice Balaam to do what he wants. And in that moment, we get a, a better picture of who Balaam is. We see him show his true colors. And, and here's what Balaam says in response to him the second time. So he's got all these officials, they've got all their wealth, these princes, and here's what he says. Even if King Balak gave me all of the silver and gold in his temple, or his palace, sorry, I could do nothing great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. It's pretty good. Now, spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will teach me. Right? His reply sounds very righteous. It found, sounds very noble, and it sounds like he's got the right words to ask God the right things. But what did Balaam actually do here? Do you recognize that last sentence of what he said? Now, spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will teach me. He's, he's trying to see if God will change his mind. He's trying to see if, if he can maybe 
give back different information to God and convince him to change his mind, to curse Israel, right? But he's already got the information to not go. He's already been told, don't go with them, don't curse these people because they're already blessed. So then why did Balaam go back to God looking for a different answer? It's because he didn't like the answer God already gave him. And he knows that he's going to be paid an exorbitant amount of money if, he, if he's able to curse the Israelites. And he, he wants to impress all of these really important people that are in front of him right now. And so he goes back to God seeing if he'll give him a different answer. Seeing if maybe God will change his mind. And I think that, I think that many of us have related to God in that way as well. Myself included. We, we've all asked things from God that aren't good for us. And yet we continue to pursue some of these things even after God's told us that they're not right. right? And thank goodness God doesn't give us all the foolish things that we ask for in life. But, but that's not what I want to point out. What I want to try and show us or, or help us see this morning is how Balaam viewed God. Um, he, right? Like I said, he knew he was powerful. Balaam knew that Yahweh was the only true God who could make a difference in anything in this life. That's why he reached out to him. He wasn't praying to Baal or the local gods of the Moabites, which would have made much more sense. So he seemed to know that God was true and real, but he doesn't care what God cares about. He cares about what he can get from and through God. Back in uh, the 11th and 12th century, there was, a, there was a really great Christian thinker. His name was Bernard of Clairvaux, and uh, he wrote a wonderful book called The Love of God, and in it he describes these different levels and degrees of love that we have in our relationship with God. And so he starts out by saying that we all have this love within us as a loving self for self's sake. And I'll explain what that means. So we all begin our, our journey of love in this world by loving and taking care of ourselves, right? That's where we begin in our journey of love, taking care of ourselves, looking out for number one, doing what benefits us in this world in this world, and it's the lowest form of love, but we all start here. We learn to love ourselves, right? So that's the first step. The second love is to love God for self-sake. Most people grow into this love when they face suffering, and when they realize they come to the end of their own ability to make a difference in their lives, they reach out to someone who can, God. And so, we reach out to a higher power asking him for help, and he does come through. He does help us, which is incredible and good. And so we can learn to love God for the benefits that he gives us in this life. We can learn to love God, and this is a good step as we continue to grow in our relationship with him. The third love that, that Bernard uh, describes is to love God for God's sake. To love God for God's sake. And it's to love God out of a, a necessity, not that he will provide everything in every situation, that he will help us come through every piece of suffering and take away all the bad things in our life, but knowing that despite the times that he doesn't, that he is still good and that he's still loving. We begin to love God because we know he is worthy of love, that even when he withholds the things that we think we need in those moments that we need it, he's still good, he's still working love. We can trust him in that. That's the, that's the third form of love. He goes on to describe another one, but I just want to camp here for a moment. Um, right, Balaam, coming back to the story, he was stuck in kind of this first and second form of love. All he cared about was himself. He was looking out for number one. He was trying to get as much of the wealth and, and pride as he possibly could in this situation. 
And, and he's stuck in this, I will love God as long as he benefits me stage, this type of relationship. And, and, and there's a warning for us here in this passage not to, not to remain in this place without allowing God to challenge us, to transform us, and to help us continue growing. And I also want to point out, and very important that you hear this, the reason I bring all of this up isn't to shame you. It's not to make you feel bad that you're stuck in stage one of loving self for self's sake or wherever you recognize yourself within these. We all start on the path of love by first loving ourselves. The point is whether or not we're willing to continue to grow in it. Whether or not we allow God to transform us and challenge us. So, can you recognize where you are on this path? Do you, do you find yourself wavering between a couple of the loves? Do you, do you notice yourself fighting any of the steps of growth within this as well? And once again, please hear me in this. It doesn't matter where you are along the path. What matters is that you are working towards growth, that you're working towards understanding God more. It's about getting back on the path when you fall down. No matter how long you've been on this journey, whether you've been a Christian for 70 years your whole life, or it's been a couple moments there's always more to learn about god that's the beautiful aspect of who he is you can continue to know him more and more so what's holding you back from growth has something stopped you because you're afraid or maybe maybe you've stopped talking with god because it seems like he never answers or maybe it even seems like he's not giving you what you need in the moments that you need it right we can trust that he is good and working good in all circumstances. And we can know for certain that Jesus has made a way so that it is no longer our mistakes that keep us from him. Do you hear that? It's not your failures. It's not your brokenness that keeps you from Jesus, that keeps you from having a relationship with your father. That's not what it is. What it is is constantly turning away from him and, and never coming to him for help, never asking for help in the moments that we need it, never seeking his forgiveness, never getting back on the path when we fall back down. Coming back to the story of Balaam, like I said, there's a lot of parts of the story that don't really make much sense And, and when we first read the story because God answers Balaam and he says, okay, uh, go to these people. If they ask you to go, then go, but only do what I tell you. And then right after this, we come to the passage that we read, and it says that God was angry with Balaam for going. So what's going on here? Um, first of all, just plainly, why did God say go? And then why did God get angry with Balaam for then going? Um, and I think as I was studying this passage, one commentator has it partially right, where they notice that it says, the language here says, if God said, if these men ask you to go with them, then go with them. The story never tells us that they continued to beg Balaam to go with them. It seems like it says Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with them. He just chose to go of his own volition. I think that's partially right, but I think there's a, a deeper portion of this as well. And, and more than that, it's to remember that God knows the heart of every single person. God knows what's within your heart and my heart. And I think what, what made God truly angry with Balaam for continuing to go is that Balaam cared less for obeying him. He cared more about his own self-preservation and wealth than he did about cursing hundreds of thousands of people. It's a lot like 
the story that happens about 300 years later, right? Because Balaam was willing to benefit himself by cursing hundreds of thousands and going against what God had already done. And 300 years after this story, we get a similar thing happen, right? The Israelites, they've completely taken over the promised land and we read in the book of Judges that they did okay, they failed, they did okay, they failed. And it's this repetitive cycle of them continuing to fall into failure, coming back to God, continuing to fall into failure. And so as the people are constantly turning their backs on him, they ask God to give them a king. They want a single ruler who would be in charge of them, just like all the other nations around them, because they were unique. They were, they were a nation that was governed by the, the priestly role, the Levites, right? They would tell them how to obey the law, how to fulfill it, and they would take charge of making sure people did that. They didn't want that anymore. They didn't want the system that God had set up for them. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like everyone else around them. And so the, the Israelites complain, and they ask God again and again to give them the king. And in this response, I always found it really interesting. God knew that their asking for a king would only result in more of their own suffering. And he even warns them. He tells them very straightforward about what the things the king would do to them if he were to be in charge. He would take their sons and daughters and he would make them slaves in either his army, in his gardens, vineyards, different stuff like that. He would take the best of their harvest and the best of their land as well. And that they would have to obey him regardless of whether they felt like it or not. That he had the highest word and no one could fight against that. And even after God warns them about all these things, they still choose to ask God. They say, yeah, we know that, but still we want a king. And so God allows them to have a king. Right? God will give us what we want in order to teach us at times, to help us see that God knows what we truly do need and what will benefit us the greatest in life. And at times God denies the prayers of righteous people for good reasons that we might never know. God equally sometimes grants the desires of evil people in order to turn back to God. So Balaam is following the officials and his princes. He's excited to get his reward, and his donkey stops three times. And each time he beats her for continuing to walk on. Um, another thing I learned about donkeys this week is that they're actually very stubborn creatures. Um, or or they're, they're rather thought to be stubborn. They're not actually. They're quite brilliant creatures. Because usually what happens is if a donkey senses any form of danger... It digs its heels in and it doesn't budge an inch, but only if it recognizes some tangible danger, right? We think that they might be dumb, but it's because they perceive a real threat that they can't be told what to do or budged within that. And part of the contrast that we have in this story of Balaam's donkey and Balaam is that, that we can point out that even a donkey was more obedient to God than his own, uh, not his own prophet, but someone who he would speak to. Someone who would hear his voice. An animal was more obedient to him than Balaam was. It's like the story of Jonah, right? Who, who runs away. He's been called by God to speak this message to the Ninevites. And instead, because he knows how brutal they are, he goes a different direction. And he sails out for the opposite way. And as he's running away, he's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by a fish. And in the same way, we get an animal acting with more obedience to God than even his own prophet right? Animals. It's a little bit humbling. 
Because I think at times when we read stories like Jonah, like Balaam, we can, we can compare ourselves to them and make ourselves feel a little bit good. Like, ah, at least I wouldn't probably run the opposite direction or get thrown into the mouth of a fish, right? But that's not the point of these stories. The point isn't to compare ourselves and see how much better than we are to them. The point of reading these stories is to, is to reconcile the fact that we are so similar to them. Right? All of us have turned our backs on God when he's called us to something. Every single one of us has made the mistake of running the opposite direction when he's called us to somewhere. And it's pretty humbling. And the degree to which you see the same traits of yourself in these people is the degree to which you will understand God's love for you. What I mean by that is the more we are willing, willing to recognize our own brokenness, the more we will begin to see our own need for a father and a savior. Because the deeper we recognize our own ability to make the same mistake, the more we know that we need someone to save us. That we will continue to make the same mistakes unless there is a God who can make a difference. So what, what else do we learn about God from the story? What, what do we learn from the way his presence appeared to Balaam? I think the first is this, that this is what it took for Balaam to recognize his own greed and his own pride. It took a donkey talking to him. Um, and what I want to point out is that God will show himself to us in ways that we will listen, but we still have the choice to ignore it. At times, we can be so blinded by our sin that the path that we think we're walking is the right one. And so, in the midst of that, sometimes God has to use a two-by-four across our foreheads to get us to realize what right is right and what wrong is wrong, to get us to stop and think. And even in those moments, we can be assured that when he has to use the two-by-four of correction, it's done with gentle love. It is done with such a mercy that even... The smallest pangs of his painful correction are, are used for our benefit, are used for our own good. With the best intention in mind, we can be sure that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. And this is part of the joy that we have through Jesus, that, that we can face every difficulty in life knowing not only that God will redeem it, but that he will work good through it. Another thing we can learn from the way that God chose to reveal himself to Balaam is that God can use anything in all of creation to speak with us. God is in control of everything. We aren't, right? And so at times we can, we can judge the mode through which God speaks, right? Sometimes it comes through the voice of a friend who's warning us about the bad path that we're going down. Maybe we're not on good ends with that friend, so we judge them. Or maybe, maybe God's voice sounds a lot like your spouse, encouraging you to read your Bible, encouraging you to forgive someone. We need to be humble in order to hear God's voice, which is why Balaam continued to work against God and what he had spoken to him. He's proud, right? And we catch a glimpse of that when he says why he was so um, angry with his donkey the three times. He says, because you made a fool of me. Look at, look at how you made me seem in front of all these important people in front of the princes, the officials, and the people who are going to be paying me. Balaam was embarrassed, and he wanted to impress them all, but God used the donkey to temper his pride in good ways because Balaam was heading down a bad path, right? It was, it was his pride that led him to try to continue to curse the Israelites and fail. And he, he unsuccessfully curses the Israelites. We'll come back to that in a little bit here, but 
he, he eventually led to his own downfall. His pride led to his own downfall. A few chapters later in chapter 31, we read that he encouraged the Moabites to go and entice the Israelites away from worshiping their God uh, by sending prostitutes, by encouraging them to worship Baal. And, and he does well. He encourages the Moabites to do so. And because of this, some uh, 24,000 Israelites have to be put to death for wandering away from the Lord. And it was his pride that led to him doing this. He couldn't curse the Israelites, and he's going to come up with some way to make himself important and useful to the king. And that's what he did. And it's that same pride within us that God wishes to drive out. You see, pride keeps us from having a relationship with God. It's what makes us think that we are in control of our own situations. It makes us rely on ourselves, our own strength. I, want to, I just want to share a quick quote with you from C.S. Lewis uh, talking about pride. He says that pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. The utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Do you hear the words that he talks about pride with? It's the greatest of all vices. It leads to every other vice. And God's presence will show up in some pretty incredible ways, some pretty terrifying and challenging ways as well, in order to get us to be transformed, to change us, to discipline us for our own good so that we look more like him, that we can leave behind our pride that only allows us to rot and to decay. It was, this, it was this dangerous pride that tried to drive Balaam, um, that God tried to drive out of Balaam. And even though he admitted his guilt for a moment, even though Balaam said, I have sinned, do you want me to turn back? He went right back to pursuing his own end at, right after this. If you read chapters 23 and 24, uh, Balaam ends up blessing Israel three times instead of cursing them. And it's not because he didn't try to curse them. He sets up these sacrifices. He builds seven altars, offers seven rams on these altars, and he tries to find out an answer through sorcery, and even then, he's still not in control. He tries to curse Israel, but he can only bless them. He can only speak the words that God speaks through him, because again, it's not Balaam that's in control. It's not you and me that's in control. It's God. He works through us. And do you see how great our God is through that? That even when our enemies try to curse us, that God will work and redeem those things for good. So this week, we're going to face moments where it seems like the enemy has won a victory over us, whether it's a short moment or maybe we're even walking alongside someone who's feeling like that. But remember that God is working even more so through these times and these moments, that he's working a greater good than any evil could overcome in those situations. Like I said, God's presence might show up in some terrifying ways in our lives, and he might use some of those difficulties to catch our attention doesn't mean he's always doing that. Sometimes it's random. Sometimes it's just life. But throughout it all, even in the times that seem like chance, even in the times where we can't figure out what God is trying to teach us, we can be assured that he's working for our benefit, for our good. Right? That if we have a relationship with God, if we have asked him to transform us, to change us, then every pain, every fear, every tear, that, every hardship that we face in life will be used for good in our lives. 
can redeem anything, anyone. And he draws us closer into his loving arms every time he does this. So it's going to look different for each of us, what it's going to take to practice this and remember this for us this week. Like I said, it might mean encouraging someone else in this. It might mean reminding yourself of who God is. But I encourage you to memorize Romans 8, 28. Because those moments where you aren't sure, and I'll read that again for our benediction, but in the moments where you aren't sure what God is doing, we can always trust that he's working good. He's willing to redeem and make good out of any situation that is evil and bad. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good father. We thank you that you care about us, that you love us, and that your love sometimes looks like discipline, looks like getting us to change our course. And even in that, you love us enough to do it. Father, I pray that you would help us not to be in pride when those moments come. You'd help us to be humble enough to, to recognize the ways in which you want to transform us. And God, that's not always the case, but we thank you that you continue to pursue us and continue to transform us. Father, as we make mistakes, as we turn our backs on you in, in, in ways that are unfair and unfaithful to you, Father, we ask for your forgiveness and we ask that you'd help us to get back up quickly and to pursue you in those moments. But Father, I pray for each one of us here that you give us a greater depth of understanding and trust and belief in the fact that you are working good through everything. Father, help us to be filled with hope and with joy so that we might share that with others. We thank you for your faithfulness, God. In your name, amen.